0: Genesis 39, 1 through 23. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me my master has, ref- has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the master your servant, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But...
1: All right, <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Um, it's a privilege to be here with you. I'm glad you're here at Central West End Church. Add my voice of welcome to, to Eric's. Um, as he said, I, my name is Davis Mooney. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Central West End. And it's a privilege to be able to uh, preach every once in a while and give Eric kind of a week uh, of not having to prepare a sermon. Um, this is the first time I've worn one of these things, so I'm sorry if I'm fiddling with it a little bit. It's, I feel like a Secret Service agent. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, I've been having a look at this passage, Genesis 39, and it's a wonderful passage and I'm really excited to share it with y'all this morning. So let's pray and then we will dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, learn from your word together. We pray that you would illuminate to us, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say to us through your word. I pray that you would speak through me, um, that I would remain faithful uh, to this passage and to your word, Lord. We praise you and thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in 1890, the Irish author Oscar Wilde published a really interesting novel. It's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. And it's about uh, this young and handsome, uh, beautiful young man, Dorian Gray. And Dorian knows that he's beautiful and wants to preserve his beauty, so he decides to get a portrait of himself commissioned. Well, as he's sitting one day for this portrait, it's being painted, a rich, hedonistic, and selfish man walks up. This man's name is Lord Henry Wotan. And Wotan sees Dorian and how handsome he is. Wotan has been spending his life kind of obsessing over beauty and has spent much of his fortune pursuing it. So he sees Dorian and has to talk to him. And he starts telling Dorian about his selfish and hedonistic lifestyle. And Dorian has a really good question for him. He says So, how does temptation fit into your lifestyle? If you're this rich and hedonistic man, how does temptation, what do you do about temptation? And Lord Wotan has a really interesting response. He says, The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing. Dorian loves this. He vows for the rest of his life, any time that he's faced with temptation, just to yield to it. To give in and do whatever he was tempted to do. As you can imagine, this ends up going poorly. (laughs) He ends up destroying all of the relationships in his life and even destroys himself, dying as a hideous and decrepit old man. It's a very sad story. All of us have felt temptation in our lives. There are things that we're tempted to do that we really want to do, but we know that for some reason we shouldn't do those things. And we're struggling hard not to do them. And I think sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we're like Lord Wotan. We feel like the easiest way to get rid of temptation is just to yield to it, to give in and do what we're tempted to do. But the text that we're reading today shows us a better way out. We're going to see Joseph's temptations in this passage, and we're going to see that he knows a way that leads not to destruction, but a way that leads to faithfulness as he's faced with this temptation. So scholars agree that this passage begins to answer the question: How will Joseph fare in Egypt, in the largest empire in the world at the time? So we saw last week. Eric was preaching last week on um, a couple of passages bef- or a couple of chapters before this, where Joseph is up in Canaan with his father and his brothers, and through some really interesting family dynamics, uh, is sold into slavery. And we see in this passage what happens after that. Joseph is brought down to Egypt. And in Egypt, he is tempted, as we see in this passage. So the question is, will he follow the way of the empire? Or will he follow, remember the promises of God to all of his ancestors? He's plopped into the middle of a culture that is very different from the one that he grew up in. A culture that doesn't know the Lord. And uh, maybe even more importantly, cares nothing about the promises that God has made to Joseph's family. So, Joseph is tempted, and the question is, will he remain faithful to those promises and to the Lord? Like Joseph, we are all tempted to fall in the face of temptations. There are warring desires in our heart, like I said, things that we know that we shouldn't do, and we're trying so hard not to do them. And sometimes we feel like we're bruised and battered, and uh, we don't know where to turn. Well, today we're going to see Joseph's three temptations in this passage. Uh, Joseph is uh, presented to us as a model. He, he, he shows us how to resist temptation and to remain faithful. But I don't want us to leave just thinking, oh, I need to be like Joseph. Rather, I want us to ask how it is that Joseph is able to remain faithful in the midst of de- these temptations. And as we do that, we're going to ask the, this passage a big question together. It's how are we to remain faithful to God in the midst of trials and temptations? Uh, for you note takers out there, that's how are we to remain faithful to God in the midst of trials and temptations. I'm excited to look at this uh, together. So let's dive in and let's have a look at the first scene, at his first temptation. It's in verses one through six. So Joseph, even though he's a slave, he's brought down to Egypt as a slave, he's quickly catapulted to the peak of the empire. Uh, he's bought by and lives in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar is described as the captain of the guard, which either means that he was the head of security for Pharaoh, or he was, very, he was possibly a very high-ranking military official. Either way, we know that uh, Potiphar was a very powerful man, he was very close to Pharaoh, and he was very rich. And all of a sudden, Joseph is placed in charge of all of this very powerful man's possessions. He's kind of his right-hand man. Joseph gets success very, very quickly. And it's because we see in verse 3 something really interesting. It says, His master saw that the Lord caused Joseph to succeed. The Lord blesses Joseph's work and makes him very successful. So here's the temptation The temptation is that Joseph could have used all of this power and success that he had gained for his own good and for his own satisfaction, but he doesn't do that. Rather, the Lord blesses Joseph uh, and through Joseph blesses the house of this Egyptian master, so much so that this man who doesn't even know who God is, is able to say, the Lord is at work in that man and therefore promotes him. This reminds us of Genesis twelve three. Uh, it's back when God is talking to Abraham, who would be uh, Joseph's, I guess, great grandfather. And God says to Abraham, "I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Joseph, in faithfully using this new power and success that he's received and that he's tempted to use for his own gain, but rather he uses it to bring the Lord's blessing on an Egyptian's house, uh, on on the house of a man who doesn't even believe in God. Joseph is tempted with success, but he understands that his success is both from and for the Lord to be used uh, as a blessing for others. As I was reading through these first few verses, I was actually, I was reminded of the life of my dad. Uh, Some of you have heard my story, others of you haven't, but uh, my dad, he wasn't perfect, none of us are, but he was a model for me of what it looks like to be a faithful servant of the Lord uh, with some degree of success. So my dad, when he graduated from college, he was hired by a man who was older than him to run a small business together. This man had started a business and he hired my my dad to run it together. And they worked together for many years and the company started to grow. Now this man uh, passed away after a while and when he did, he left the company to my dad because he knew that he would faithfully take care of it and he would cause it to grow. Which is what it did. My dad continued to work hard and the Lord kind of blessed that work and caused the company to grow. So the company had stores all over the Midwest and the Southeast and each of these stores had managers. The managers would have to come to Chattanooga every once in a while to meet with dad and talk about the company. Well at first uh, the managers when they would visit would stay in a hotel that was just in kind of a dangerous part of town. And many of these managers were, um, they were women And dad just never really felt comfortable allowing these women and and his managers to stay by themselves in a hotel that was in kind of a dangerous part of town. So what he did was he used the success that the Lord had given him through his company to bless the managers. So he took the attic in our house and finished it and built a guest suite up there so that the managers could come and stay with us when they came to visit. This was for two reasons. The first one was just for protection. He felt better about the fact that uh, his managers were safe under his roof. But the second one was because he wanted them to see what it looked like to be a part of a Christian household uh, for the few days that they were visiting with us. Many of them were not believers. They weren't Christians. And dad wanted to bless them and allow them to see what a Christian household looked like. And then when I was 17, my dad actually passed away very suddenly. And every single one of those managers came to his funeral... And they got to hear his testimony and the ways that he had tried to use his success to bless others, uh, which was something that he had experienced firsthand, or they had experienced firsthand. So, like Joseph, my dad understood that success was from the Lord. As we've said, Joseph is plopped down in Egypt, where success is power and power is for gain. Joseph could have worked hard and used his power and his success for his own satisfaction. But he doesn't do that. He resists that temptation and uses his power and success to bless others so much so that they can see the Lord at work in and through him. Just like Joseph, we are tempted when we taste success. But like Joseph, we also are called to use that success for the blessing of others. So for some of us, that success is is pretty large. Uh, We've worked hard, and the Lord seems to have really blessed that work and uh, we're leaders in companies or our schools or our families, we have kind of a large sphere of influence. I would, I would encourage us to, to look like Joseph does and to see the way that, ask what that success is for. Is it for our own gain or is it to bless others? Some of us, for some of us, our success seems to be pretty small. It seems like uh, we're working really hard and the Lord just doesn't seem to be blessing that work necessarily. And uh, it's, it's frustrating. But I would also encourage us to see Joseph and Potiphar's relationship. It's obviously a very unique relationship. Uh, Potiphar is able to see that the Lord is at work in Joseph's life and promotes him. And so I would encourage us to look at our relationships and see where, what relationships. Pray that the Lord would show us the relationships uh, where we can allow people to see the Lord in work, uh, at work in us. And as we do so, we can look to the work of Jesus, who came uh, centuries after Joseph went down into Egypt. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is the very definition of power and success. But in Matthew twenty twenty eight, Jesus describes himself, and he says, "...the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Jesus understood that his success and his power was not for himself. It was to be poured out on behalf of us, his people, to save us from our sins. When we see magnificent, Jesus' magnificent use of power on our behalf, we can begin to use our power and our success to bless others. It's a wonderful thought. All right, you might be saying, I understand that uh, we need to resist the temptation of success and use it for the blessing of others because it's from the Lord. But what if I try to do that and no one wants it? What if no one wants our blessing? The world doesn't really work that way. What if I try to bless others? Won't they just take advantage of us? Let's have a look at this second scene, Joseph's second temptation, uh, and let's continue to ask the text this question, how are we to remain faithful to God in the midst of trials and temptations as we look at verses 7 through 20, Joseph's second temptation? And I want to pause for just a minute and say that um, this next point has to do with sex. Uh, It has to do with a biblical understanding of sex, and I think we need to hear it. But I also understand that Many of us are trying really, really hard to view sex the way that the Bible tells us that we should. And it's difficult. We feel like we're tempted, and we feel like it's just so hard to resist that temptation. And uh, we kind of feel like we're failing. I hope that this point can be an encouragement to you. I also understand that there are some of us who have been very deeply hurt by someone else's abuse of sex. And I also hope that this point can be an encouragement to you. Uh, to to sh- reveal the very deep and healing view of sex that the Bible shows us, so let's let's dive in. All right, in that last part, notice the last part of verse six. It says, "Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance." Uh oh. That's kind of bad news. Uh, Eric has done a really good job in Genesis of showing us that the Hebrew language, the original uh, language of, of Genesis, uh, was very economic and efficient. When they, when they tell stories, they kind of just give you the story and that's that. So when there are details, those details are supposed to really pique our interest. This is a detail. Not only was Joseph a very successful man in Egypt, he was also very handsome in form and appearance. All right, enter Potiphar's wife. Guess what? She doesn't care at all about Joseph's success. She doesn't care that the Lord is with him. All she cares about is the way that Joseph looks. And we see this in her language. It's extremely inappropriate and terse. All she says is, "'Lie with me,' to Joseph." Uh, In the English, it's three words. In Hebrew, it's even shorter. It's two words. Potiphar's wife is demanding that Joseph sleep with her. She has power as Potiphar's wife. She has power. She's kind of over the household, over these servants and slaves. But she uses that power to demand sex of others. Notice Joseph's response in verse 8 and 9. You can tell he's a little bit flustered. He's like, "Uh, what do I do? Um, But he he ends up. It's actually a pretty reasonable response. He ends up giving two reasons why he won't sleep with Potiphar's wife. The first one is that he doesn't want to betray his master. We've seen the relationship that he has with uh, with Potiphar, his master. That Potiphar has promoted him multiple times. And he just wants to be a loyal servant to his master. But secondly, and most importantly, he knows that it would be a sin against God to sleep with Potiphar's wife. He wants to remain faithful to God because he knows that God has been faithful with him. So finally, this all comes to a crisis in verse twelve when Joseph is just outright ambushed. He's working in, a, in Potiphar's wife one day, just sort of going, or in Potiphar's house one day, he's just sort of going about his business when all of a sudden she grabs him, and he bolts. He flees. He knows what's going on. He leaves his outer garment in her hand, so he would have run out of the house like half-naked. He gets out of there. Joseph is a, he's a handsome young man who is tempted sexually, but he flees. He resists the temptation. This is not a flea of cowardice. This is a flea of victory. Later on in the New Testament, Paul kind of references, has a little like reference to this passage. In First Corinthians 6, Uh, verse 18, where he says, flee from sexual immorality. That's exactly what Joseph is doing here. We have to talk a little bit about the biblical view of sex here. Um, Why this would be a sin against God if if Joseph had gone through with this and slept with Potiphar's wife. And I think 1 Corinthians 6 is uh, actually very helpful to understand this. In verse 16, just a couple of verses before the one that um, we just referenced, Paul says... Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. That last part, the two shall become one flesh, is actually from Genesis 2.24. And it's right after the first ever marriage, uh, the marriage of Adam and Eve. And it's not just a picture of what's happening in sex. It's actually a, kind of an overarching understanding of the biblical view of sex. In, se- in, in the Bible, sex is a picture of everything else that is happening in the relationship it 's the seal of total commitment. Biblical sex is within marriage um, it 's after you've said to someone, "I want to give I want to be joined to you completely, uh, culturally emotionally, um, legally, financially, uh, emotionally, even spiritually. then the, the seal of that commitment. Um, is the biblical understanding of sex. So, some of you might be saying, I knew it. I've heard this before. Uh, The Bible just wants to spoil our fun, so to speak. Uh, It's outdated, and no one lives that way anymore. Well, I hope that we can see that actually what the Bible is doing is giving a much deeper, fuller, kind of extreme value to uh, sex, And that's exactly, sex is a a deep bond that is to be enjoyed within marriage. And that's exactly what Joseph is saying here, what he understands. He says to Potiphar's wife, uh, not only are you my master's wife, you're not my wife. I haven't totally committed myself to you, and I'm not going to. And so he's able to resist that temptation. I think deep down, we all have an understanding of the biblical view of sex, or at least of the um, brokenness of sexual relationships without commitment. And I want to illustrate this uh, using a voice that has no understanding of, or very little understanding of the biblical sexual ethic. Um, she's not a Christian. Her name is Hannah Tennant Moore, and she's an author. And she, in a review of a book uh, that deals pretty heavily with sex, she kind of opens up uh, about her sex life and is pretty vulnerable and honest, and uh, here's what she says. She says, it makes me sad to think that my sexual desire is based in crude animality. On the most basic level there is little difference between my sex life and an animal's mating rituals. Yet I want sex to be a shared delight so strong it releases me from the strictures of everyday living. I will always want sex to be more than the physical act of intercourse that it will always insist on being. That's pretty amazing. She understands that sex is designed to be a shared delight, a seal of total commitment. But she can't get past the very physical nature of it. She can't see past that. But Joseph also understands that sex is designed to be a shared delight. Um, So he won't sin against God. He won't cheapen what God has designed for blessing. and So he remains faithful. Now, like I said, some of us... um, are trying really, really hard to view sex the way that the Bible says that we should. Um, we we feel like we're, we're we're tempted, and we just we we're trying so hard to resist it, and we feel like we try to flee, but we fall. And uh, there's a lot of shame and guilt when that happens, and we feel like we're letting the Lord down. I think a lot of times we think that self control is just suppressing desires, um, is just kind of shoving those temptations down and hoping that they'll just go away. But I want to suggest that maybe self-control is something else. What if self-control is having an overarching supreme desire that we allow to reorder all of our other desires? We see this actually in the life of Jacob and Rachel. So Jacob was uh, Joseph's father. And Eric talked about this passage a few weeks ago uh, and he he did just a wonderful job with it. So Jacob... Is so in love with Rachel. He's so enamored with her that he allows that desire for her to reorder his other desires for seven long years. He works hard for seven long years just so that he can be, uh, that she can be his wife. Remember how Eric connected that to the gospel? It was it was beautiful. He said that for for Jesus, we are his Rachel. Jesus comes to the earth so that he can have us as his people. We are his deep desire. And so he comes and he's, he's tempted uh, while he's on the earth. On the night before he goes to the cross, uh, he prays and says, Father, if there is any other way. Um, but instead, his desire for us is so deep that he allows it to drive him to the cross. He dies on the cross on our behalf for our sins so that we can be his people. The beautiful thing is knowing that we are Jesus' Rachel, we are his deep desire, his grace starts to transform us and He becomes our Rachel. I don't say this to make us feel guilty. I just, it's, it's just a wonderful trans, transformation. We can allow His love for us to reorder all of our other desires. And that's exactly what Joseph is doing here. He says, I have these, these desires. I have these sexual desires, but my desire for God and His faithfulness to me is so much greater than that. And so he's able to resist the temptation. All right, so you said, All right, I've I've, I've resisted temptation. I'm trying to be be faithful to God. Now, what happens when God doesn't seem to bless that? God, we're trying so hard to remain faithful, but our life just doesn't seem to go the way that we think it should. All right, let's have a look at this final scene, uh, verses 21 through 23. And let's continue to ask the text one more time How are we to remain faithful to God in the midst of trials and temptations? So we see that Joseph has resisted temptation, the temptation of power and sexual temptation, but his life seems to get even worse. All of a sudden, he's thrown into prison. And it's interesting, a lot of scholars agree that Joseph should have died here. Uh, In Egyptian law at the time, it was very common for adulterers of any social class to be executed. So this seems to suggest, when it says that Potiphar's anger was kindled, it's because he's in a really difficult spot. Uh, It seems like he is trusting Joseph, his faithful servant, maybe even over his wife. He knows that this would be very out of character for Joseph. But he has to do something. And so what he does is he throws Joseph into prison. (laughs) Joseph uh, ends up in, even though he's been a faithful servant, a faithful slave, he winds up in prison as an innocent man. So here's the final temptation. It would have been so easy for Joseph to say, Why, God? I've done everything you've asked. I've resisted this temptation. I've tried to be faithful, and you give me this? It would have been so easy for Joseph to, t- to despair. He's tempted to despair, but he doesn't do that. Let's see how. Uh, what happens, actually, in the prison is very similar to what happens in verses 1 through 6 when he's in Potiphar's house. Uh, the Lord continues to bless Joseph as Joseph looks to the Lord. The jailkeeper starts to notice Joseph, know that the Lord is with him, and so he, continues to pro- or he starts to promote him. Even in the midst of the prison, even as he has resisted the temptation and it works out so poorly, Joseph doesn't despair, even though it would be so easy to. Why is this? All right, let's look at verse 21. I think verse 21 is the key to this whole passage. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The Lord was with Joseph. We saw that phrase back in verse 2, actually. um, And we see it again in verse 23. The Lord's presence is all over this passage. But here in verse 21, it also includes this idea of steadfast love. Uh, In the Hebrew, this is hesed. And it involves this idea of covenant faithfulness. God will remain true to the promises that he has made to his people. We remember those promises uh, that we've been seeing all through Genesis, the promises that God is making to Joseph's family, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. God is remaining true to those promises through his presence with Joseph in his life. And therefore, he's with Joseph, he's guiding him in the midst of his rise to power, uh, in the midst of his sexual temptation, and in the depths of this prison. As I was reading through these last few verses, I was reminded of the life of Corrie Tin Boom. So Corrie ten Boom was a watchmaker in the Netherlands during World War II. She lived with her family, and they were They were all Christians. And so when the Nazis started to invade the Netherlands and Jews were fleeing from the Nazis, Corrie ten Boom and her family uh, harbored these Jews, and they hid them from the Nazis. Well, they were soon found out, and all of her family was sent to different concentration camps where many of them would ultimately die. Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy were sent to the Ravensbrück concentration camp where Betsy would end up dying, but Corrie would live. She would survive. In some way, somehow, while they were in that concentration camp, they smuggled a Bible in. And they held regular Bible studies for their fellow prisoners around them. And years later, Corrie ten Boom wrote a book about her experience in the concentration camps called The Hiding Place. And in that book, she writes about these Bible studies. And she says, They were little previews of heaven, these evenings beneath the light bulb. That's Unbelievable. In arguably one of the darkest, most evil institutions in human history, Corrie ten Boom is able to say that she saw a little preview of heaven. As she's huddled around a Bible with her fellow prisoners under a single light bulb, I mean, you can picture it in your mind. It's incredible. She sees a little preview of heaven. It would have been so easy for Corrie ten Boom to despair, but she doesn't because she knows that the Lord is with her through his word. Like Joseph, like Cory Boom, we are all tempted to despair when we are trying to be faithful, but life doesn't seem to go the way that we think it should. But instead of despairing, we can turn to the Lord and trust in his faithfulness and his presence with us. It's because God is with us. God shows steadfast love and loyalty to his people. Joseph's life looks like a roller coaster from the perspective of the world. I mean, it's up in his rise to power, it's down. It's upside down when he's in prison. But God's faithfulness is straight as an arrow. God is with his people. So the answer to this question, how are we to remain faithful to God in the midst of trials and temptations? It's because God is with us. God is faithful. And so we can pursue faithfulness in the midst of temptations. And we remember another person who we've already talked about a little bit, uh, who was tempted and tried and was able to resist those temptations. It was Jesus. In Isaiah, Jesus is referred to, he's called uh, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the ultimate picture of God's presence with us, with his people. He had the palace, he was up in heaven with God, he had all of the power and success that he needed in communion with God. But Philippians 2, it's Paul writing again, Philippians 2 says, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant to come and be with his people. He was tempted and he was tried, but he stayed true to the very end. Do you know what happened? His life blew up. He was crucified, even though he was perfect, he was still crucified on a cross for our sins, for all of the times that we haven't been able to remain faithful in the midst of temptations. Isn't that beautiful? Our faithfulness is fully dependent on God's faithfulness to us, his presence with us. One commentator, when talking about this passage, Genesis 39, says there is no attempt to put Joseph up on a pedestal. Rather, the source of Joseph's success is clearly Yahweh's presence with him. We can respond to this Yahweh, our Emmanuel, God with us, who resisted temptation and died on the cross for our sins, allowing his grace to transform our lives and empower us to resist temptation. It's a wonderful hope. I pray that it's your hope. Let's pray together. Lord, you are a faithful God. You are with your people. Lord, we see this ultimately in the life of your son, Jesus Christ, who came and stayed true to the end and died on the cross for our sins, Lord. You have broken down the curtain. You are with us, Lord. We pray that you would empower us and strengthen us to see his grace, Lord, that you would open our hearts to see his grace and allow it to to, to transform our lives, to shape us to be more like you, to remain faithful, Lord. We praise you and thank you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.